You can follow along on page six in your bulletin or in your Bible. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so, so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, guys. Considering this passage, I want to just use it to talk uh, about five things about sin and forgiveness. In fact, uh, as I was considering that, I thought, how could I come up with some really creative, pithy sermon title about this? So I named it Five Things About Sin and Forgiveness. Uh, It's going to be a little teachier this morning, maybe, than you're used to. But before we really jump into these five things, uh, let me just define some terms. We use the word sin a lot. We have a confession of sin every week. We put it in our bulletin. Sometimes we kind of forget, though, what that word means. There are actually more than one way. There's more than one way that you could define sin. But the way that we're going to define it today, I think, really gets at the heart of it. And it is living without reference to God. It is living as if you were the center of your world rather than God. It is replacing God with you. 
You can do that in a lot of ways. You can do that in uh, rejecting God's law and his desires because you're at the center and you have different desires. You could do that actually by obeying God's law in order to earn his favor, therefore making you your own savior. You're still putting yourself in the middle and replacing God with you. So that's the broad context of how we're going to look at sin this morning. And let me just say, it, it, it's going to be dark for a little while during this time. Those five things, three of them are about us, and the things that are about us are not very fun to talk about. Well, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We do get to talk about God, so just hang with me. All right, look, it's the first thing that we get to learn about sin is that we are capable of more than we think. Now, we throw that phrase around all the time, right, with our kids and with each other, and it's a pat on the back kind of phrase that says, hey, go get them, tiger. You're capable of more than you think. You can do it. But the reverse is also true, right, is that we are more capable of the depth of our brokenness than we oftentimes think we are. If you've ever kind of thought, you know what, I'm a pretty good guy, then this is actually a good passage for you to dig into. Because this is a story that you just heard about David. We've been talking about David really all kind of the fall, and we've been telling the story of this man who is God's anointed, who is God's chosen, who the Bible actually says is a man after God's own heart. We looked last week at a wonderful story of David and how he treated this young man named Mephibosheth. And he loved him and cared for him. And we saw it really as a beautiful example of God's love toward us. David has his highs that are really high. But here's David now showing us that no one is beyond the corruption of sin. Here is David at his lowest. This is the king, remember. This is the one who's got it all together, it seems. This is the one who we're supposed to see as the example. And here's David showing us the depths of sin. It can happen in our hearts, too. You know that song we actually just sung a, few, a couple of songs ago, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. It's a beautiful hymn. It's been sung by the church for many, many years. It's written by a man in the 18th century in England. Last name is Robinson. And he was converted under the preaching of um, a George Whitfield in the First Great uh, Awakening. Thank you. Uh, the First Great Awakening. He was converted and eventually became a Baptist preacher, and he wrote this and many other hymns. And this became actually a pretty famous hymn, uh, both in our time and in his time as well. It was pretty quickly grabbed onto. And there's a story actually about Robinson, though, later in his life when he went through a time really of kind of spiritual depression. A time where he was really walking away from the Lord. A time where this man who had written this beautiful hymn was really kind of cold and lost and dark seeming. And there's a story of him actually getting into a carriage to head somewhere. And the woman sitting next to him in the carriage has been singing these hymns the whole time. She comes up on his hymn. She starts singing it and then just goes off talking about what a wonderful blessing it has been to her. And Robinson, with his heart just burning within him, just says, you know, woman, I wish that the man who wrote that was the man sitting next to you here. But it feels so different now. There are times in our lives, I think, that we really do see that we are capable of anything. And we feel that conflict deeply. You may be in the middle of that conflict now. 
You may be feeling the weight of your own sin. You may be feeling the woundedness of somebody else's sin. There are times where we come to realize deeply that we are capable of so much more than we oftentimes think. You know, when you are driving reckless, it's usually an indication that you think at the end of the day, you're just gonna live forever. If we think that about our actions, if we think that we're not capable of making terrible decisions, if we think that we're not capable of falling this far, then we're gonna live our lives in a very reckless way and we're gonna find out very quickly exactly what we're capable of. Let's move on to the second one. Remember, we're walking into the darkness here a little bit further. The second kind of truth about sin is that our sin actually runs deeper than we oftentimes believe it does. Not only are we more capable than we think we are, but actually our sin runs deeper than we oftentimes think. I want you to just see if you can recall again this story of David and Bathsheba. And in your mind, if I said, what sin does David commit? Start with the one that pops in your mind now, and I bet your mind is going to keep going, because there's a long list. In fact, I think you could accurately say that David breaks every one of the Ten Commandments in this passage. The first two commandments are about idolatry. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any images of those gods. Well, what is David worshiping all throughout? He's worshiping the God of pleasure. He's worshiping the God of power. He's worshiping the God of control. He's worshiping the God of his own ability to kind of make everything right. He is worshiping those things at the very center of his life. And he is now taking somebody who's made in the image of God and they become then the manifestation of that idol for him. So not only is God replacing or David replacing God at the center of his life, but he's actually changing everybody else around him to worship that God as well. Check one and check two on the first two. Number three. Don't take God's name in vain. Well, what happens here in chapter 12, verse 5? David, when he hears the story of this man, this parable, of a man who's stolen the sheep of this poor man, what does he say? He rains down curses on him, right? He takes the Lord's name. May the Lord actually deal so severely with this person. But he's doing so in a falsely righteous way. He's taking God's name to curse another when he knows actually in his heart that it's for him. How about keeping the Sabbath? Well, it's pretty hard to keep the Sabbath for nine months when there is hidden sin in your heart, isn't it? It's pretty hard to keep it holy. How about honoring your parents? Any parents in the room feel like they would be really honored if this was the way that their son acted? And then it really gets good. Do not murder, check. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, check. Do not bear false witness, check. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, check. One through 10, knocked down all in a row. That is the way that it oftentimes is with our sin. There are layers. Once you start kind of peeling back those layers, you see that there's a lot more going, in, going on in your heart than there oftentimes even is on the surface. Sin is like an iceberg. 
We, we see the little piece of it on the top of the ocean, but we don't see actually what's oftentimes underneath. I say something that's really hurtful to my wife. Yes, there's that sin, but I start tracing it back and I find actually the anger that's been brewing for weeks. And underneath that anger is the idolatry of always wanting to have my own way and control. We're peeling back the layers and it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's all connected. Third thing we learn about sin in this passage is that our actions will have consequences. The things that we do and the choices that we make will actually reverberate through our world. They will have consequences on the people around us. I count at least five other people. The five other main characters in this passage are all affected by David's sin. There's Bathsheba, right? And, and her own particular abuse, which by the way, I do think this is abuse. This is David misusing his power as king to take whatever he wants. So we have an abused woman, an unplanned pregnancy. We have the manipulation of a general. We have the death of Uriah, the murder of Uriah, and we have a child who is born and dies. Can you just feel the, the carnage that comes from David's decisions here? It's a bomb that goes off and affects everybody. There's shrapnel all around, and it hits everybody who's in this story. There was no one who's left unhurt. Friends, the honest truth is our choices have consequences. They do. I read a story the other day about uh, a pastor who was talking with his family about the season of Lent. It was about the time for Lent to happen, and they were just talking through, here's what Lent is, which is a time where we get to celebrate and focus on repentance and what it means actually to give up that we might follow Jesus. And he was telling his family this in some really beautiful words. You know, people oftentimes celebrate the fact that Jesus gave up everything by giving up something themselves that they think has maybe taken too close of a hold in their heart. And as they were talking through this with their kids, they said, you know, your mom and I were gonna give up coffee and sweets. And a couple of their older kids said, yeah, we wanna join in with you. We wanna give up that thing. We're gonna give up our sweets as well. And then their six-year-old said, I totally get what you're saying. I'm gonna give something up too. I wanna give up consequences. That <laughs> you're supposed to laugh at that. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> It's unfortunately our desire, but not the truth, is it? We can't simply say we want to just decide to give up consequences. Our lives and our choices have consequences. That is what happens when we decide to move against God, when we put him on the outskirts and ourselves at the center. There will be wreckage. There will be damage. All right. We've kind of ended our three about us. We've, we've got about as dark as we can get. Let's see some light here. So here's the fourth and first most beautiful thing about forgiveness, and it is that God loves to forgive. Here's one that just kind of flies by us, I think, when we read it. But you heard in that transition, when Lori started reading, what happens? God sends Nathan to David. That doesn't sound like love at first, does it? But it is. God is not going to let David simply just walk away in his sin. He is not going to let him continue to create the wreckage that he's creating. He's not going to let his heart wither away, as David says in Psalm 32, when he flees from the Lord. He is actually moving toward him. 
And he sends Nathan to David in a beautiful display of his love and mercy to come and track David down and say, I'm not going to leave you alone. We're going to deal with this and we're going to deal with it well. It is a beautiful thing that God does not sweep things under the rug. It is a beautiful thing that God actually deals with us honestly. It is a gracious thing when God tracks you down and grabs a hold of your heart and says, we're going to talk about this now. And then what happens as soon as David repents of his sin? He says, I've sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan say? Here's a list of 10 things that you need to go and do in order that you might be made right in God's sight. No, he says, the Lord has forgiven you. He has taken away your sin. He has forgiven you fully. There's a an old Spanish story about this father and son who had uh, had, a, had a rift in their relationship. And there were terrible words said to one another and they had just completely been apart and they hadn't seen or talked to one another for years. And the father longed for his son to be back. And so what he did is he actually took out an ad in, in, in a paper, in a Spanish paper, and it just simply said, Pablo, your sin is forgiven. I love you. Come home. The next day, 800 Pablos showed up. We yearn for that, don't we? We want to be made right. We want forgiveness. We want love and restoration and reconciliation. We want it deeply. And that is the beauty of what the Bible says that Jesus has done for us. The truth is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to save those who don't think their sin is as deep as they should. Jesus Christ came to save those who don't understand that their sin is more layered and deeper than it is. Jesus Christ came to save those whose actions have created wreckage all around them. Jesus actually came and died to save those people. People like me and people like you. He has wiped our sin away. This picture really of Nathan and David is like an etch-a-sketch, right? Where, you know, the sin is actually in there. It's visible, it's real, but then it's just shaken and it goes away. He says, you're forgiven I've taken it. I've owned it. I've put it on myself. I've forgiven you. And here's the fifth and final piece, also wonderful news, is that God is in full control even when we're out of control. Even in the midst of our sin, God actually uses our sin to be a part of his amazing redemptive plan. This is tremendous news. God, as, as, as one of my pastors used to say, God uses sin sinlessly. God actually takes the brokenness of our sin, the brokenness of this world, and he uses it to weave together something beautiful. He uses it to draw a picture of something more exquisite than we could ever imagine. He takes even our brokenness and he uses it for his good. There's a story that came out in the Atlantic not long ago about a, a music critic, and he was, he was there in this, um, this little New York City jazz club. And there was a band playing, it was kind of a nondescript band, not a super famous one. And they were playing and they were pretty good, but he noticed over the course of the first three or four songs that the trumpet player actually looked really familiar. 
And he started to think that guy looks like Wynton Marsalis, who's not a nondescript trumpet player, but one of the best in the world. Turns out it's actually exactly who it is. I'm going to actually read you a little bit from this article. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, who I could now see was indeed Marsalis, but who no more sounded, or looked, no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You unaccompanied, written by Victor Young, a film score composer for a 1930s romance, the piece can bring out the sadness of any scene, and Marsalis appealed deeply, appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly taking the words, talking the words in the notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marcellus played the final phrase, the title statement, in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a little bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off, blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electronic bleeps. People started giggling and picking up their drinks. The moment and the whole performance unraveled. Marcellus paused for a beat, motionless, and his eyebrows arched. I scrawled on a sheet of paper, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marcellus replayed the silly little cell phone melody, note for note. Then he repeated it and he began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down back to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off, with you. The ovation was tremendous. That is the way that our God uses the brokenness of humanity. He weaves it together in a beautiful and glorious way that we just could not imagine. If you've looked kind of at the end of this story of David and Bathsheba, the end actually doesn't happen until the New Testament. When Bathsheba shows up in the beginning of Matthew as one of Jesus's descendants or ancestors. There are four women who are listed in that genealogy and one of them is this woman, Bathsheba. She had lost her dignity, she had lost her husband, she had lost her son, but she is the ancestor of the King of Kings. God has taken something ugly and making it beautiful. God has taken something broken and used it to repair like only God can repair. Let me just leave you with this. Sin is really important. <laughs> for us to deal with, powerful, terrible. We need to actually understand it deeply in ourselves. But the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God is so much greater than our sin. He loves to forgive and he loves to actually take broken people and put them back together. To actually use our sin to build the beautiful world that he is creating now. That is what our God loves to do. Let's pray that he would enable us to understand that more deeply this morning.
Our Heavenly Father, it is good for us to sit in sobering passages like this, feel the weight. And it's good for us, Lord, to feel that weight be removed by the blood of Jesus. It is good to proclaim the truth about ourselves, to own that story. Because David's story is our story. But Lord, it is not the end of the story. And we are so thankful that it's not. You are the God who loves to forgive. You are a God who loves to do good even in the midst of our doing wrong. 